So like I said, we're in our last week of the Psalms, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of a recap um, of, of uh, what the Psalms are and, and kind of what we've um, have walked through in. So the Psalms are the center of the Bible. Um, they are very familiar usually. It's, they're probably the most quotable things in the Bible as it's poetry. Uh, many of our worship songs come straight from the Psalms. Um, and, and if you read a Bible reading plan, they will probably include the Psalms in it. And so most of us have probably seen the Psalms. Or you've heard someone quote Psalm, uh, Psalm 50, 52 something, whatever, something rather, because they're very quotable. Um, the Psalms are worth... <laughs> I can't even think of one right now. That means, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the song, the Psalms were the songbook of the Jewish temple, um, starting in 500 BC, and they have been the songbook and, and really the source for um, many uh, of Christian worship and, and praise songs for the last 2,500 years, ever since then. Um, and so, and many of them were written by King David um, in around 1,000 BC. And so, if you read the Psalms with a view, of seeing them as a whole songbook, you'll discover that it's not just this haphazard series of, of random weird poems, but it's really a carefully assembled book of poetry um, using some pretty cool styles of, of, of literature and composition and, and, and sentence structures. And it's just a really cool book, a really cool intentional book. Um, and kind of reflecting on, uh, on the source of, you know, the, the content of the Psalms, if you go into the average Christian bookstore or, or look up Amazon's top 10 books or music or um, like Christian songs, Christian books that get, that get bought, um, it's mostly titles that concerned with positive messages um, of faith and discipleship and just like, like how to be a better you or, or the, God that, that, the, the, the you that God wants you to be, you know, how to live a, a great life, how to be happy, that kind of stuff. But it's kind of funny because this isn't really the a reflection of what we see in the Psalms. Like, like if, we, if we paint a picture of our society, the reflection is probably um, like happy-go-lucky Kenny Chesney, um, punk, or, or you know, happy, uh, upbeat, pump, uh, rock, or pop music. But if we look into the Psalms, it's more like sad cowboy music or angsty punk music. Um, it's, it's, it's 70, 70% of the Psalms are lament, which, which means to cry, to be, to be sad. And only 30% of it is it consists of praise and wisdom and confidence in God. And so this is sometimes hard to work through with our culture, um, is this reality that the Psalms aren't always just, just happy-go-lucky. Um, and so like I said, the Psalms are written by people who have a spiritual link to us, but not a cultural one. So we really have to do the work to understand and, and stand behind the people that um, were writing these things to do the work to, about to see what they were experiencing and, and how they are expressing their connection to God. Because, yes, we are by faith connected to them, but by culture, we are very different. Um, but if we read the Psalms, we see that it's very real. It's very grounded. It's very um, um, raw. And it's not hidden behind good behavior or a civilized mask, but it's really a transparent working out of the emotions and fears and joys of living with a present God that listens to us and hears us and, and loves us. Now, when we read the Psalms, we need to not read them as though we are God on the receiving end of this letter. Yes, these, these poems are written to God and about God and for God, but that doesn't mean we read them from God's perspective. And neither is it helpful to stand on the side of trying to work through like what's going on, like a, like a, like a third party, just like trying, like a, um, uh, what's it called? The a case study. It's not a case study. But the best way to understand is to stand behind the psalmist, to stand with the psalmist, the writer of the psalm, 
as he stands on the Palestinian, Palestinian hillside and looks over his shoulder as he praises, laments, and rants at the God of creation before him. And so in our series, we have reflected on lament, and we've gone through some wisdom psalm and some, a confidence psalm. And just as the book of Psalm ends in a long string of praises, the last five chapters are all praise psalms, I would like to end on a praise psalm. Um, and actually, coincidentally, it's the last psalm that David wrote. It's, the last, it's, his, it's his last one and kind of his, his go-out-with-a-bang um, psalm. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 145. And I would, as you're turning there, I will uh, give you some fun facts about it. Um, when David wrote this, it is actually um, written as an acrostic, so ev- from A to Z, but in the Hebrew language. Um, so that doesn't really mean anything for us. We don't get to see the cool acrostic. But David really thought like, like deeply about this and, and wanted this to be used and, and, and read and prayed like regularly and regularly over time. Like he used, he put a lot of thought into this. And so I think that God's got something cool for us in Psalm 145 today. So read along with me. Follow along with me. I exalt you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and is highly praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts, and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great and faithful in love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him and all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. C.S. Lewis has something pretty fun to say about this psalm. He said, The most valuable thing that the psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. And that's just a great picture of, like, we can read this and see that, that David has exper- is experiencing some kind of great joy and responding in, in great happiness and, and positivity about what God has done in his life and who God is, and who God has been to him um, in his kingship and in his life. And if we jump back to what I preached on the first week, or if we just jump back to many of, you know, 70% of the psalm books, we can see that David went through a lot of hard things, and he ends his life and ends his writing of this poetry with a magnificent praise that starts the beginning of five full chapters of ending in, in praise, the, the, and the five last chapters of the Psalms. Um, and the Psalm is, a, is, is just a, it's a, a beautiful picture of worship. 
It's a beautiful picture of how we ought to worship God and, and what, what there is to worship about God. It's got like everything in there. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is just a big document that was written a long time ago by really smart people to help us summarize the doctrines of the Bible. Um, they ask what is man's chief end or what is the purpose or the end goal of man or of, of humankind. And it's that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or in other words, to enjoy glorifying, to enjoy worshiping, to enjoy exalting who God is. That is our purpose. The front work was done on that. So all those smart people figured that out for us. So we know our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him in that. Enjoy that forever. And so worship and praise is definitely a key theme within, obviously, the whole Bible, but this psalm. Not just that we get some psalms of praise and that some that don't, but there is an intentional placing and positioning of these psalms in the Bible. And obviously, this one is a praising one. It is, like I said, a structured acrostic poem, so it's been thought through. Um, the worship that, that David is expressing has been thought through deeply and intentionally so that we can enjoy and, and praise God with him. And other psalms call us to worship and praise too. Um, the psalmist often seems to demand that we in the mountains and the seas and animals praise God. It says that in verse 21. And it often seems as though God is saying, aren't I great? Come on and praise me. Lift me up. God is asking for our worship. God is desiring our worship. And so all of a sudden, when we, when, we think of, when we really think about that, the God of all creation, the God that made all things, the God that has all the power in the world, all the knowledge in the world, all that he needs is asking to be praised. Does God, why does God need to be praised? Surely he doesn't need it. Like much less, like he doesn't need our praise, much less a broken person's praise. A person that comes in has probably been, been sitting the whole week, the, the person that is struggling with everything. Like he doesn't need our praise. Does the potter expect its pot to jump up and thank him for making him? Or does the software programmer expect his PC to rise up and applaud the code that he wrote? Or does, uh, do we expect our kids to, to give, us an, give you an applause for making them? Like, do we expect that? That doesn't, doesn't really make sense. So why, does, why do we need to praise God? Or why does God need to be praised? Why does God... Why does the psalmist tell an animate object to do something that they obviously can't? They can't sing, a mountain can't sing and raise their hands in praise. Why is the time we spend in worship, the musical bit, you know, using songs to express our thoughts, why is it so important to our faith? Worship is an absolute as a Christ follower. Worship is an absolute. It's not, it's not negotiable. And so I think it's worth diving in to what this is and I believe that Psalm 145 gives us the perfect framework of telling us what worship um, really is. Eugene Peterson said that worship is the strategy by which we interrupt and our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship is a time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God, not because he's confined to time and place, but because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance of attending to him at all other times in other places. And so in other words, he's saying that we, like, we need to stop and focus on God because otherwise we are totally focused in on ourselves. And the way I see it is that we're always worshiping something. 
Like we're always giving our, ourselves over to something, whether it's our own desires, whether it's someone else's desires or, or to a goal or to a certain sports team or, or a certain like type of music or whatever, your career. Like we're always giving ourselves over to something, which means we're being formed and moved towards something. And so if we're always being formed and, moving, and being moved towards something, Eugene Peterson is telling us that worship is so important to interrupt these, the, the, our, our you know, self-intrinsic, our self-centered um, focus to make sure that our focus is, is uh, uh, obediently and, and deliberately towards God. And so first, an object of beauty or an object of coolness or greatness is by its nature, it's adorable, admirable, or praiseworthy. It's worthy of praise because it is beautiful or lovely. Like there are things that are, that are beautiful or lovely. They exist like that. Like, like when your infant child looks up, with you, looks up at you with a smile of pure joy inside of you. Like that is intrinsically beautiful. Or when your favorite musician is playing that song that you love in person, you're, you're at a concert, like that is intrinsically really great and cool. And there's a, 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 an experience of, of praiseworthiness that exists there. Or when your team wins like the Super Bowl, or hopefully the Stanley Cup tonight. Let's go abs. <laughs> when your team wins, like there's something intrinsically great about that that is praiseworthy, that is, that is clap-worthy or laugh-worthy, of smile-worthy. We acknowledge something that is worthy of praise. It, things exist worthy of praise. You spontaneously nudge the person sitting next to you to tell them to watch or to listen or to, or to say something. Wow, did you see that? You can't keep still. You want to applaud. You want to smile. You want to laugh. I, 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 when I was growing up, my brother and I shared a room, um, and, uh, and we would go to sleep watching TV, um, to my wife's dismay, um, working on it, uh, but, <laughs> but we would go to sleep watching Sweet Life on Deck, or, or SpongeBob, or um, any of those other funny, apparently dumb shows now that I'm, I'm learning are not great, but um, we grew up watching those shows, and then Bryce would go and stay at a friend's house, that's my brother, and I would be in my room watching TV by myself, and, and there'd be a funny part, and I'd laugh like, hey, did you, oh, oh, you didn't see that. It's just natural that, that we want to like, spontaneously bring people into the experience of, of acknowledging the greatness or the goodness or something. So for us, obviously, the object of beauty in this case, the object of goodness or greatness is God. Now, God does, it, you know, like I said, like God does not need you to do or say anything or even to see it or him. He's gorgeous. He's beautiful. He's amazing. He's awesome, whether we're there or not. He's an independent person of beauty, and apart from his existence of praise or affirmation or acknowledgement that goes with it, he is there and exists that way. So in other words, the praiseworthiness is there whether we are there to praise or not. The psalmist tells every creature to praise his name. The creatures, and even less the mountains and trees, can't. They can't do that. But this is what the psalmist is trying to get to there, is that they reflect the glory of God. Just their existence reflects the glory of God. They are part of his beauty. And by just being there, they are taking part in recognizing that he is worthy of praise. His greatness is unsearchable. God is just, he's just like that. He is just beautiful. He's just amazing. He is just strong and awesome and like beyond imaginings and simply worthy of praise. He's like that whether I notice it or whether you notice it or not, or acknowledge it or not. He, is, he exists worthy of praise. It's like a magnet. A magnet is, is, is in a magnet, like it still is a magnet whether you have metal around it, metal touching it or not. It still exists. That force of magnetic attraction exists whether 
it's bringing metal to it or not. But intrinsic to his praiseworthiness and intrinsic to the Christian life is that we can be a part of that beauty, and God is, wants us to be a part of that beauty. We recognize it and are drawn to that magnetic field, and we end up in praise and worship. And so the second thing that I'm seeing here about worship is that our souls collide with God in worship. The part of this, the praise of God, is our involvement. When we see an object of beauty, something within us wells up and seeks an expression of that. It's not just about the object of beauty. It's more of an inevitable, like an in, instinctive reaction in our being when we are in the presence of something that is funny, that's the presence of something that is great, something that is sad. Like it, everything res, like, requires a reaction, a response that wells up inside of us. So why do we pay money or give time to going to an art gallery or a concert or a sporting event or, or drive up into the mountains for a, a, a beautiful hike or to ski? It's because something in us responds and is fed by the experience of seeing and listening and sensing in a way that taking part in a moment of beauty or excellence. And so this is why it is offensive when that place in our souls is enticed by something other than God, something that's not good, something fearful or unpleasant or violent or something that is destroying our souls ultimately. That's partly what Paul means, like what he, when he encourages us in Philippians 4, he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about the good things. Think about the things of God. Think about the praiseworthy things because if we direct that attention, if we direct that energy towards things that really aren't praiseworthy, that are really destructive for our souls, we get formed into something other than God wants us to be. And so if, if, I, if, if, I'm, if my attention is constantly on Instagram, constantly on Facebook, constantly on TikTok, and that's, that is forming me. That's making me become something. Like, it's not just something that is filling time, but I am becoming something by giving myself away, by giving my attention, by, by giving my energy, my resources, pouring my resources into that thing. And so we must focus, focus our attention, focus ourselves. Like Romans 12 says, our true and, not, and, our true and beautiful worship is by our giving our bodies over as a living sacrifice to God by giving all that we are, all of our resources, and giving, giving ourselves over to him because it's forming us into something. First, because he is beautiful, and second, because our souls collide in that, and because we are becoming something in that worship. Our souls reach out to what is lovely. Our souls reach out to what we're attracted to. And in God, we deeply sense the presence of something or someone of deep beauty and grace, and our souls leap within us and reach out and praise and say, wow, and say, God, you are awesome. We can stand here on Sunday mornings and lift our hands and, and actually believe the words that are true about our God. C.S. Lewis wrote that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses the enjoyment, but completes the enjoyment. Enjoyment or any emotional experience isn't just something that stays inside of you. Like, like your emotional experience of sadness is, is, is not completed, is not, is, is not fully expressed unless you cry or express that sadness or anger. Our experience of enjoyment towards God, we can look and see that he is good. It's not complete, and it's not even a real experience unless we express that about God. It's just not natural either. My mouth will declare the, declare the Lord's praise, he, he says, and he ends in verse 21. We long for it. So praise and worship starts with an object of beauty, which exists as something that is worthy of praise and by its nature, and then 
praise erupts in our souls as we connect with it, as we collide with it, as we become a part of the beauty of God, as we become a part of that experience. And third and finally from this psalm is that joy is made complete by sharing with others. It's better together. The enjoyment of something beautiful is made like immensely more satisfying by sharing it with someone else. Even a sunset, like you're, you're, you're having a good night on your front porch, uh, have your favorite drink, whether it's Coke or an old-fashioned, and you're enjoying the sunset, and even then you're pushed to want to call somebody or you're pushed to want to take a picture of that and put it on Instagram for everybody to share. Like enjoyment is, is, ne- is, is always better when we get to enjoy that with someone and tell people about it. And even though, in fact, although pri- private praise is necessary, I want you to be alone and enjoy God alone. The joining in with others of his praise is not just necessary, but an involuntary and, and, and like, like absolute thing that we must have as Christians. The desire to worship together emerges alongside the soulful response of praise. Like, it, and, and if we read, you know, we talk about declaring to the next generation and telling of his good works. If you even just look into your own life, into your hobbies, like I in high school played disc golf a lot because I had friends that played disc golf. Then I moved to college, nobody played disc golf, so I didn't play disc golf. Then I moved to Denver, had a lot of friends that played disc golf, so now I play disc golf again. Like, there's something about it being a communal thing that brings it all together. I was born into a family that loves the Raiders, and so I end up loving the Raiders. That's what happened. If I wasn't born to a family that loves the Raiders, even football, I probably wouldn't even be interested in them. There's something about praising something together, something about being together all in about something that is, that is ingrained into your DNA, that, is made, that has made you that way. God has made us to be a communal enjoyment, a communal, communal enjoyers, communal like laughers, communal praisers. Like if, if one person laughs, it probably wasn't that funny. <laughs> like, like I make a lot of jokes and I'm the only one laughing at the joke. It's not how it's supposed to work out. So you guys need to start laughing at my jokes. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right. If a man and a woman fall in love and they think each other to be pretty great, they tell each other, and probably their friends too. If they don't tell each other that they think they're great, there's probably something wrong and that relationship doesn't last. Or if I'm not going and telling my family and my friends of how great I think Olivia is, it's probably not a healthy relationship. The speaking out of the words of praise adds to and more so completes the joy of the experience. When a couple gets engaged, they don't keep it a secret. They tell everyone. They go post it on Facebook. It's, it's, it's like the big post on Instagram. Like It's edited pictures. You've thought about the words for hours. After Olivia and I got engaged, we enjoyed the moment. We took some selfies and all that good stuff. But then we went and sat in a log and called our parents and our friends. Like within the same hour that we, within the same half an hour that we got engaged. Because we want to share that with people. We want to share our enjoyment with people. It's, it's ingrained in us. So the psalmist records that one generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. That's what it says in verse 4. And later in verses 10 through 12, it says, All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And so in praise and worship of God, we are simply identifying something that is worthy of praise, an objective thing of beauty, something that exists beautiful. We are allowing ourselves to well up in response to this overwhelmingly beautiful thing, colliding with it. And then we complete our experience of this beauty and this, exp- and this experience is made exponentially better 
experience this experience of the beauty of God by drawing others into our praise. These praise and worship responses of the psalmist are interspersed with declarations of all the things that describe the attributes of God in his kingdom and tell us that this, worth, this is worth going on about forever and ever. In verse 11 it says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your rule is for all generations. What does that sound like? It sounds like eternity. It sounds like forever. Like this is something that is going to stop. It's something that, this is a cycle. Something, God will always be beautiful. We will always need to let, allow ourselves to get welled up and caught up and, and collide with God's beauty, and it will always naturally lead to joining in with others and attracting others to the praise of who God is. Now, forever and ever, or for all generations, is that what heaven's going to be like? It's what we see in the Bible. Once we all get to heaven, that we will all, in, in one tongue, be praising God in unity and unison. But that, if that means a tur- turbocharged version of what we do here on Sundays or, a- or any other worship night, I'm a bit scared or perplexed. Because much as I love Olivia's voice and Andres' voice and, their, and, their, and, and uh, Rio's skills in, on the drums, and I love praising God, even if I'm like, we got like, 10 hours of sleep and I'm in good mood, I can last like 40 minutes if I had really good sleep last night. So like praising forever seems like a long time, right? Now, C.S. Lewis says that these are merely attempts at worship, that we are never fully successful. And he says, and I'm a little more optimistic than this, but he says often 99% are failures and sometimes total failures. But the life, the Christian life, the, the life of learning to worship God, the life of learning to live with God and to live in God's community is like learning how to ski. Some of you have been lucky enough to to learn, to go skiing, a lot of us in Colorado, and you probably remember the first few days or weeks or months um, when there was an occasional and a very occasional astonished moment when you got to stay upright and move smoothly down the snow and mountain and get to look across all the beautiful things around you before the inevitable and humiliating crash to the ground. You got rare moments of joy, of enjoyment obscured by the aching muscles and bruises of learning. And so, the Christian life is like that. We, in the beginning, there are rare special moments of, of our awareness in the presence of God, followed swiftly and obscured by the distractions and agitations of life. On this side of heaven, things are never going to be fully complete as, as we want them to be, but God is growing in you, and God is growing in us, and God is growing in the world towards him. As we give ourselves over to him, this, our, our, our capacity to see his goodness will grow. And it's not a mistake that this is David's last song. And it's the beginning of a chapter of the five ending, of the ending five chapters of the Psalms being of praise. Like David's life ended in praise because of a lifelong of struggle, a lifelong of sin, a lifelong of wrestling with God, a lifelong of crying out and asking for his wisdom. The psalmist is encouraging us to grasp onto that slender experience of acknowledging the majesty of God, allowing our souls to well up in response and joining in with others to praise him. So when God returns and we get to spend eternity with him, his beauty will be uncluttered and unveiled and our hearts will be free to fully respond and let go. And forever and ever, won't feel like forever and ever. It'll feel like that great 30 minutes on a Sunday that you get of worship. It'll be like skiing the black runs with ease and grace. Maybe I can get there someday. It'll be like skiing the black runs with ease and grace and with all the time in the world to look around and enjoy the scenery. The bumps and the bruises and the failures and a 
another world, a past world. It will be that moment of shared delight with a friend when nothing needs to be said, where it's just enjoying each other's, each other's presence. It will be enjoying like, like on, a, on a Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner when everyone is in town for, for, for the holiday and you, you're sitting there and enjoying dinner with your family and your friends and it's just like, I wish this moment would never end. Pretty cool. We'll be able to f- freely praise completely and fully and for ages and ages and forever. It won't be boring or painful or false. Or for you musically challenged people, it won't be out of tune. Someday you'll get there. <laughs> it will be leaving behind the pain and suffering and worries of this earth and enjoying a new heaven and a new earth. We'll experience the fulfillment of identifying he who is worthy of praise forever. We'll experience our souls colliding with him. We'll experience this in perfect unity and harmony. We can experience this one day because the psalm tells us that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow in anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. That's verses 8 through 14. And the only reason that we can taste and ex- we can experience the taste of this now is because of Jesus. The only reason that we can be growing towards this now, be growing towards the, God's ultimate full picture of us being able to ex- like experience the fullness of his goodness is because of Jesus. We can truly live to our chief end of enjoying, finding our enjoyment and glorifying God because of what he has done for us right now. And so maybe you're listening today and thinking, that's all great, you know, like, I can read those words and think God's cool, but like, I don't feel that right now. Blech. My encouragement to you is return to the gospel. When, in, in Psalm 51, 12, he says to restore the joy, ask God to restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. We don't, like, there's no, like, you can't, like, you can't make that happen. Like, there are some, you know, you can medicate, you can go turn on The Office and laugh for a little bit. You can go watch highlights of your favorite sports team's most successful season. You can go drink a beer. You could go, you could medicate, but you, you cannot bring yourself back to that place. It's God who's got to get you there. So if you're, if you're listening this morning and thinking that, that I can't praise God, I, I'm, just, I'm just not there. I, I want to implore you to ask God to bring you to that place. It's God that can get you there. It's God that can truly bring you to that place of seeing his goodness. We won't be able to see all these things about God unless we truly reflect and understand the breadth, the width, and the depth of how God has shown his love to you. Every Sunday, we do communion, and we reflect and celebrate this exact thing, that Jesus died on the cross so that we could have unhindered joy. We could find unhindered purpose that we could like, praise God and see him for who he really is and find our, our fulfillment and, and find our joy in, in exalting him and lifting his praises up. And so as you take communion, reflect on Jesus' sacrifice. And what I pray for you is that you can see God as all the things that David lists him as in this, that he is your king, that he is great and he exists as highly praised. He's unsearchably great. He is full of splendor. He's gloriously majestic, a wonderful worker, awe-inspiring, greatly good, righteous, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, mighty in love, mighty, faithful, helper, just, provider, fulfiller, near, guardian, defender, and holy. These are all the things that he lists out in here. My prayer for you is as you reflect on the joy of your salvation, that these are what you can see God as. An endless list of good to you. 
just like David did. And as we reflect on those things and as we praise God for those things, I want you to be able to respond in all the ways that he describes. To exalt him, to bless his name, to raise his name up, to praise forever, to declare his works, to proclaim his mighty acts, to speak of his splendor and speak of his majesty, to proclaim his power, to give testimony about him, to sing to him, to let his compassion rest on you, that you would find real compassion, that you would find joy in thanking God, that you would allow yourself to be helped by God, to be satisfied in him, to be able to look to him, to call out to him with integrity, to fear him, to cry for him, and to stand behind him as he guards you in your life, in your faith. This is what I want for you. And this is the joy that is available. This is the fulfillment that is available in what Christ did for us, what Christ did for you. And maybe, you're, maybe this isn't something you've experienced. Maybe like you haven't experienced that, the, the joy of your salvation, because you haven't accepted what Jesus did on your behalf. And I just have an encouragement for you. Jump in. If you ask me, if you ask any, anyone else that has accepted Jesus as their Savior, there isn't, there, there isn't a, a joy that is matched. There isn't fulfillment in anything else. Like there are many things that we can find temp- temporal enjoyment in. There are many things that we can, we can pour our lives into our careers. We can pour our lives into other people. But those can't provide what God wants to give you in fulfillment and true joy and joy in glorifying him. And so if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to jump in, to, to, see, to come and see, to come see what, like how God is good, that you could see that he is mighty and all, all these amazing things that David lists about him in Psalm 145. The psalmist says in verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. And so call on God. Like, he will show up. Call on God to give you, the, to restore the joy of your salvation. You can do it right now. So as we take communion, reflect on God's goodness towards you. Reflect and, and celebrate what God did for you. And might that be turned into a life of, of, of praise and a life of telling the next generation, of telling the people in your life about his goodness. I love you. Let me pray for you. Lord God, uh, we um, praise you for all these things, all these things listed in Psalm 145, an endless list of, of just good, good things, God. You are the definition of good. You are our standard for good and beautiful and righteousness and holiness. And so, God, I pray that you remind these things to us. And as we rehearse these things through our obedience to you, God, might we find true fulfillment, find true joy, and find our, our purpose in glorifying you, God. God, we love you, um, and again, we just pray that um, our worship is glorifying to you and that um, we can be yours and be formed by you um, this morning and as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.